You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, the other day, I was sitting in the waiting room at the DMV in Richfield, waiting to get new license plates for my car. And while I was sitting there, there was a young guy sitting behind me talking on the phone to someone. And let's just say he was making no effort to be discreet. And as much as I tried to focus on getting some work done while I was waiting, I couldn't help but overhear his conversation. And it's the DMV, so I was sitting there for a good 20 minutes listening to this guy talk on the phone the whole time. And as I did, certain things became very clear. One, it was an emotional call. Like, at certain times, the guy was distraught. At certain times, he was near tears. At certain times, he was very angry and upset. And the central issue was pretty clear that was causing his distress. It was the loss of his best friend. And it wasn't that his friend had died. That was also clear. He kept saying it over and over again, I've lost my best friend, I've lost my best friend. Um, But it had to do with some sort of relational falling out. There had been some sort of fight or something. So that so much was clear. Distraught, loss of best friend. But there was also a lot that wasn't clear. Okay? Like it seemed that there may have been some sort of betrayal involved, but it wasn't it wasn't clear. Money troubles were mentioned a couple of times, but I'm not sure what that was all about. There may have been something to do with medication. That kept coming up. And so, there was lots of complicating factors in play, most of which were completely unclear to me. Now, we've all been in that sort of situation, overhearing one side of a conversation. Maybe uh, you've overheard your spouse or your roommate Uh, have a conversation with a friend or a boss or a family member, and and because you know them well, you're able to piece together what that conversation is about with greater specificity than I was with a stranger at the DMV. But no matter how well you listen, the simple fact is you only have one side of that conversation. And it means that certain things will be clear and other things will be less clear. So, when it comes to interpreting Paul's letters… This is the situation we're in. We are listening to one side of a conversation. And it's a conversation that assumes a lot of background and history and interaction, much of which we don't have direct access to, which means as we interpret, say, the book of Galatians, we're always trying to fill in the gaps to better understand what's happening. We're trying to account for what Paul does say by filling in the gaps about what the Galatians were saying and doing, or what Paul's opponents were saying and doing, and so forth. And when we do this, some things are clear, and some things are less clear. For example, it's pretty clear that Paul believes that the Galatians are in danger of abandoning the gospel. And it's clear because he says that directly. It's also pretty clear that there's some other group in play who are troubling the Galatians and preaching a different gospel. That's clear because he says so directly. That's obvious. But there are other aspects that are harder to determine. Like, what exactly were the opponents saying, these troublers? What what were they saying? What was their full theology? We don't know. We don't hear from them directly. 
What was their message? How were they attacking Paul? It's pretty clear he's on the defensive, right? You don't, you don't say to this church, before God, I'm not lying, unless you feel like someone might think he's lying. So it's clear Paul's very sensitive. They might think I'm lying, that's why I say this, but what did they think he was lying about? Why was his credibility in question? So as we, as we look at that, I want to first kind of provide, like, how would you go about answering that question in a responsible, reasonable way? So here's a couple of kind of concentric circles that you might look at in order to try to put together the other side of this conversation that we're listening to. First, we want to look in the letter itself. That's what we've been doing mainly. What does Paul say directly? Um, that's the first place. That's the center of the circle. What does Paul say directly? Beyond that, we then can compare this letter to other letters that Paul has written because that helps to kind of fill in some gaps for us about what Paul thinks and how he thinks and what he says other places might shed light on what he says here. And then we can work out from there to other parts of the New Testament, like for example in Galatians and in particular the passage we've got in front of us, the book of Acts is pretty significant, right? The book of Acts records Paul's conversion and what happened right after that. And here again, Paul records his own conversion. And so we can look at both of those to try to shed light and think, why would Paul highlight these facts in this context? And then we can work out even farther than that to the rest of the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and think, what sort of aspects are, are being brought? Allusions and echoes and, and references that Paul might be making in this passage that if we compare this situation to that situation sheds light on it. One just real, real brief one. Last week, Pastor Ryan mentioned this language of, um, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. And he said, you know, that language, astonished that you're deserting, kind of shows up in the book of Exodus. We just read it in Exodus 32. They so quickly deserted. And so, Paul might be picking up that language about Israel's abandonment of their God in, in the face of idolatry, and that might be relevant. That might shed light on how he sees the situation he's facing. And then, of course, we can also go look outside the Bible at ancient sources to see what's going on historically in the first century. So those are sort of the, the ways we would look at that in order to be able to understand and observe things rightly. And again, as we do that, though, some things are going to be clear and some things are going to be more speculative. But hopefully the more pieces that fall into place and the fewer pieces that are left out, the more confidence we can have that we're putting the puzzle together properly. All right. So I want to work through this passage kind of in four stages with four little headings. So you can just kind of think this way. Here's where we're going to go. Situation, accusations, narration, application. Situation, accusations, narration, application. So first, what's going on in the first century in Judaism, in Jerusalem, in Galatia? We need to get something about what's the situation here. Second, more specifically, what are the accusations against Paul? And that's where we're going to have to kind of read between the lines and fill in the gaps to determine that. Can we, it's clear he's, he's being accused of things, but can we reconstruct the charges against him? And third, Paul's defense, at least at this, form, at this point in the letter, takes the form of a story. He tells his testimony. So from this passage, chapter 1, verse 11, all the way through chapter 2, verse 14, he's giving history, and it maybe even runs up through 21. There's, there's debate about that among scholars, about how far. When, Paul starts a story. Let me, you know, hear me, I'm going to tell you some stuff you know about my story. Where does he stop? When does he transition? 
So Paul gives us a bunch of his history, highlighting details about his former life, his calling as an apostle, his, rela- his apostle, his relationship to other apostles. And so why is he doing this? How does that narration answer those accusations? And then finally, I want to draw just a few applications for us. How does, that, how does Paul's story help us see our own? So, situation. What's the situation in the first century? Well, for Jews in the first century, and really this was clear from Genesis 12 onward, the fundamental division in the world is between Jews and Gentiles. Like the basic categories of how you think about the world is there's Jews and there's Gentiles. That's how Jews thought about the world. Those in the covenant, those outside the covenant. Okay, now that's the basic division. It was never always quite that cut and dried and simple because there was always sort of these offshoots, right? You had the sons of Ishmael, right? So they're descended from Abraham, but not fully in. And then there's Edomites. And, and then within Judaism, you've got different groups and you know, Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and different, different groups. But still, at a very basic level, oh, you have the Gentiles. There are certain Gentiles that kind of respect and revere Israel's God, but they don't get circumcised or keep the full law. They, they call them God-fearers. We see them in the book of Acts. So it's never quite as cut and dried as Jew and Gentile, but the basic division in the Bible all the way up to the first century is Jew versus Gentile. Now, here's the thing. Into that world, with that division, comes the gospel. The good news that Jesus is the Messiah, Israel's king, indeed he's the son of Israel's God, and that through his death and resurrection, he rescues both Jews and Gentiles from sin and death through faith. That message comes into that world, and that scrambles that basic division. As a result, the gospel coming in and scrambling that division, as a result, the social picture in the first century is pretty complicated and confusing. Like, here's just a sampling of the different groups you might have in play, all right? So, on the, on the ends, you'd have unbelieving Gentiles, like pagans and idolaters, and on the other end, you'd have unbelieving Jews, Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah, and, but are continuing in the ways of Moses. Now, within the unbelieving Jews, you, you might have them subdivided into different camps like the Pharisees, Sadducees, and then just the common people. But there's one particular group that's really important, and these are folks who are really, 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 really zealous for the traditions of Moses, so much so that they persecute anyone among the Jews who they regard as less zealous than them, Okay. So think about the the groups that were leading the charge in persecuting early Christians. They were the group that Paul was a part of. That wasn't all Jews, but there was a subgroup within unbelieving Jews. Okay, so you've got those kind of on the end. Now you've got the scramble here in the middle, because here comes the gospel. Here's this new group of Christians. Okay, in fact, based on the timing of when Galatians was written, it may be that around this time was when Christians first began to be called Christians, because they were first called Christians at Antioch, and Paul is talking about situations at Antioch, and so this is the time when they got the new name. They're no longer just Messianic Jews or something like that. They're Christians. They're, they're different. Now, within that group, there are various groups that claim that name, okay? So, there's one group called this, this Jewish Christians who kind of preach a Jesus plus Torah, Jesus plus law-keeping kind of message, okay? So, 
they keep circumcision food laws, and they expect Gentiles to do the same. This is, this is Israel's Messiah. If you want to be in Israel's Messiah, you got to get all the way into Israel. All the way in. All the laws. This, this is a law-observant and law-keeping and law-expectant mission to the Gentiles. And for our purposes, we're going to call those groups the troublers. That's what Pastor Ryan called them last week, the troublers, because they're troubling this Galatian, these Galatian churches. They're Paul's opponents. Okay, so that's, that's one group of Christians. They, they, they would call themselves Christians. But then there's other Jewish Christians who they're practicing Jewish customs because that's what they grew up with. That's what they've always done. They might even still keep the food laws and all that kind of stuff because that's what they've always done. But they're not going to impose that on Gentiles. They, they get it. They get that this isn't the fundamental division anymore. But they do it themselves, but they don't expect the Gentiles to join in. Okay? Some of that group might do so only when they're engaged in mission to the Jews. Like Paul talks about, I become like a Jew to win Jews in 1 Corinthians. So he's saying, I'll do Jewish sorts of stuff when I'm trying to reach Jewish sorts of people. But when I'm not, I don't really do that anymore. Others might have just kept doing it all the time because it didn't matter. It was no longer the fundamental dividing line between God's people and those outside. So that, there's, that's among the Jewish Christians. And then you've got Gentile Christians, and some of them have simply been like, hey, we trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, for deliverance from sin and death, and that's it. Now we're just going to try to follow Him faithfully. And they don't need to worry about circumcision, and they don't need to worry about the food laws. They don't do any of that sort of stuff. They just trust in the Jesus the Messiah. And then there's this group of Gentile Christians who trust in Jesus, and they feel a little bit of this pressure coming from that troubling group to say, hey, maybe if, if we really want to be pleasing to God, we've got to go all the way in with Judaism. So that you can see how that's a complicated kind of picture and how, how the different pressures from those different groups would really shape things. We'll see more of that in the coming weeks. So, the Galatians are that group of Gentiles who came to faith through the ministry of Paul. They received the Spirit through faith apart from doing any of the works of the law. But now, under pressure from these troublers, they're considering going all in. And the troublers may be saying something like this. Look, Paul gave you a good start, no doubt. You got Jesus as the Messiah, but look, you've got to finish with the law. You want to, you want to be in, you've got to come all the way in. If you want to be, you've got to become fully Jewish in order to be in the Jewish Messiah. And so that's a question. Where do the Galatians stand? That's what Paul's writing to. And then a kind of a subordinate or related question is, where do the Jerusalem apostles stand in all of that? Like, where does Peter come down in all of those different positions? Where does James and John and the Jerusalem apostles, where are they coming from? What do they expect Gentiles to do? So, that's the situation. Now let's jump then to the accusations. We don't know precisely what they are. We don't have that side of the conversation. But based on Paul's response, I think we can make some educated guesses about what they were saying. So think of what I'm about to present as like a hypothesis, and then you've got to take the hypothesis and test it by what's here and see if it makes sense. So it seems likely that these troublers were appealing to the Jerusalem apostles to kind of trump Paul. 
Like that's the fundamental thing they're doing. We're going to appeal to Jerusalem to trump Paul. So it might be something along these lines. Here's kind of three accusations. Let's work through them. Number one, Paul is dependent on those Jerusalem apostles. They might have said something like this. Look, after Paul was converted, he went down to Jerusalem to get his commission. Like he went to headquarters to get his stamp of approval. And he, Paul knows that Jerusalem is central to God's purposes. Because remember, Jesus told his father, followers, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. That's power central. And then it goes out from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where it's at. Jerusalem's the center of the world. And Paul knows this, and so, you know, after he got saved, he went down to Jerusalem in order to receive the gospel and to be sent out on mission. He's dependent on those Jerusalem apostles. So if there's a fight between Paul and Jerusalem, go with Jerusalem. Second accusation. Because of that, Paul is clearly inferior to the Jerusalem apostles. If he's dependent upon them, he's less than them. Look, they're the pillars of Christ's church. They knew Jesus personally. They, Peter and James and John ministered with Jesus for years. They saw him face-to-face after he was raised from the dead. The Spirit descended upon them at Pentecost in Jerusalem. So if it comes down to it, don't you want to be with Jerusalem, with Peter and James and John, and not this Johnny-come-lately Paul guy? Might have been saying something like that. And then third, if, according to these troublers... Paul received the gospel from Jerusalem and is inferior to the Jerusalem apostles, well then why did Paul change his message all of a sudden? Why did he go from the Jerusalem message of Jesus plus law, that's what the troublers would say, to this new Jesus plus nothing? Law-free, or or as they might say, lawless, right? That's going to be the accusation against Paul. He preaches a lawless gospel. Well, why would Paul switch? Well, because Paul's a man-pleaser, guys. He's just a man-pleaser. He's trying to make it easy on you Gentiles. He's trying to get a big following from himself and make much of you because he doesn't want to preach the hard truths. Because the hard truth is, sorry Gentiles, you've got to get circumcised. You've got to keep a bunch of food laws if you want to be a part of God's people. And Paul doesn't want to preach the hard truths. He wants to make it easy on you. But we, we're the true followers of Jesus and of Moses, and we want you to be fully acceptable to God. And so these are the laws that God laid down for His people, and if you want to be part of the people, take on the whole laws. I think that's my hypothesis about the sorts of things that Paul was being accused of. He's dependent upon the Jerusalem apostles, he's inferior to Jerusalem apostles, and he's a man-pleaser. That's guesswork, some guesswork there, but let's see if it makes sense then of how Paul tells his story. Now come to third narration. Well, first, Paul insists throughout this passage, I am not dependent on the Jerusalem apostles for my gospel. Look there in verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel came directly from Jesus himself. There's no Jerusalem uh, pathway for him. That's not how he got it. That's not where it came from for Paul. Later, he says that after his calling and commission... This is down there uh, in 
verse, where are we at? 16. After he received his calling and his commission to preach, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Like, when I got this revelation, it wasn't like, oh, I got to go check my revelation with Jerusalem. It was, I got my revelation, boom, and I was off. It wasn't, it was three years before I went and saw those guys. Now, a little, I don't know, parenthesis here. Some people wonder why Paul went to Arabia. Okay, so there's, there's, a, there's a tradition uh, or a commentary kind of tradition among some Christians that Paul, after his conversion, kind of goes off for like three years and is like a monk. Like he goes into Arabia, it's like he goes into the desert and he like figures stuff out. Okay, that's sort of this, this the, and, and this is the passage that they, hey look, after he got his conversion, he goes off to Arabia and becomes a monk and then he comes back and begins his ministry. The book of Acts paints a very different picture <laughs> of what happened after his conversion than that and gives us a different reason for Arabia. Here's what Acts 9 says. This is after Paul has had the, his eyes opened by uh, Ananias. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is Acts 9, 19. You don't have to turn there, just listen. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the same man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Okay, so immediately after his conversion, Paul is preaching the gospel in the synagogues of Damascus. So much so that he eventually, it says, after many days, angers the Jewish leaders so they try to kill him, and he has to escape in the basket. If we then compare, this is what I said we do earlier, right? How do we make sense of stuff? Well, we're in Galatians, and so we jump to Acts, and now we're going to jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what Paul, Paul tells this story himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. Here's what he says there. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So there you go. It's the same story, right, as Acts. Now, the word governor here is the word ethnarch, meaning and it likely refers to the leader of an ethnic community. And so who's this King Aretas guy? Well, this is where we go outside the Bible to get some information, because that information is not in the Bible. King Aretas IV was the ruler of the Nabataean kingdom. Okay, and so I don't have a map. I, I hate putting stuff on that, and so I just, I was like, I could be helpful, but I'm like, I'm so against it. So I, don't, I, didn't, I, I couldn't do it, couldn't get there. So I'm just going to like use my hands, <laughs> okay? So here's Damascus, and, and it's uh, oriented towards you. So Damascus is here, the Mediterranean Sea is over here, Jerusalem's down here. It's Damascus, Jerusalem, Mediterranean Sea, the Nabataean kingdom is over here. It's like on the other side of the Jordan from Israel, it's like southeast. If you're looking, if you go, you can go find your map later, you can look up the Nabataean kingdom if you want. It's kind of southeast into Arabia, 
Nabataean kingdom would have been considered part of Arabia. So, this king, Aretas, of the Nabataean or kingdom of Arabia, um, he was, it was considered part of the Israelites. So, if we put Galatians, Acts, and 2 Corinthians together, here's what we get. Immediately after his conversion and commission to take the gospel to the nations, Paul begins his missionary efforts. And it seems like from his base in Damascus, the city of Damascus, he's venturing out across the border into the Nabataean kingdom, which are not Jews. There's probably Jews there, but they're largely pagans. And he's preaching the gospel in synagogues and everywhere. And he's so effective in his missionary efforts that he manages to anger both the Jews of Damascus and the king, king of Nabataean kingdom, okay, the ruler of Nabataean kingdom. And they conspire together to grab him in Damascus and to kill him. And then he has to escape in a basket. So, here's the relevance for the accusations. Paul didn't receive his gospel from Jerusalem or the apostles there. He got it from Jesus and he immediately got to work. After his escape from Damascus, he goes to Jerusalem. Right? So, we see that here. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Um, and uh, the church there is understandably wary of him. So we see that in the book of Acts. According to Acts 9, Barnabas has to secure a meeting between Paul and some of the apostles. And here Paul tells us who it was. It's Peter or Cephas and James, the Lord's brother. They have a meeting. And he begins to preach in the synagogues there in Jerusalem before again he's forced to flee. Now listen to this. Acts, the book of Acts says he was sent to Tarsus. And then he eventually ended up in Antioch. That's Acts 9.30 and Acts 11.30. Paul has, he says, I went to, or the book of Acts says, Paul went up to Tarsus, and then he goes eventually to Antioch. Now, Tarsus is a city in Cilicia. Look in your passage here in Galatians. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Okay, so Tarsus is in Cilicia. Antioch is in Syria. Okay, Paul, so here's, Paul is adamant. Before God, I do not lie, that for the first 14 years of his ministry, and I say 14 because in chapter 2, after 14 years, he goes up to Jerusalem again. For the first 14 years of his ministry, he was almost totally unknown by the Jewish churches in Judea. He had one little meeting with a couple of apostles, preached for a bit before he got run out of town. That was the only interaction with Jerusalem. All, all the churches of Judea knew was, hey, that guy who wanted to kill us, he's on our side now. He's preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of his conversion. Now, what's more, as we'll see in the next chapter, even when he does go up to Jerusalem after 14 years, kind of to compare notes with the Jerusalem apostles, he again is adamant, verse, just chapter 2, verse 6, they added nothing to his message. They didn't add anything to me. They didn't correct me at all. Paul and the Jerusalem apostles mutually recognized the grace given to each other and extended the right hand of fellowship to each other. And they said, look, you, we each embrace the same gospel. We just have different mission fields. You're going to go, I'm going to go to the circumcised. Paul's going to go to the uncircumcised. We have different mission fields, but we've got the same gospel. That's the history here. So, Paul is not dependent upon the Jerusalem apostles, but he's in agreement with them about the gospel. So then, that's the first charge. What about the charge of inferiority then? Well, here's, this is what's kind of cool. Throughout this section, Paul uses a number of kind of key phrases. 
He says, verse 12, he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, God set him apart from his mother's womb, called him by his grace, and revealed his son in him so that he might preach Christ to the Gentiles. Now, so you hear those? Now listen to these passages from elsewhere in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Yeah? Listen to Isaiah 49. This is a longer one. Listen. So this is Isaiah. That was Jeremiah on his calling. Here's Isaiah. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says... He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. That Lord says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. So here's the point. You can hear the echoes in those two passages, right? Both Jeremiah and Isaiah were called from the womb and commissioned to preach to the nations. And so when Paul is like, I was set apart from my mother's womb and commissioned to preach the gospel to the nation, he's doing something very deliberate. He's saying, I am numbered among the prophets, which means I am in no way inferior to those who walked with Jesus. I'm not lesser than them because I got the gospel later than them. Jesus, I'm not a second-hander. The gospel was not passed down to me. I got it directly from God and was commissioned as his prophet on the Damascus road. In fact, it may be that even his description, him mentioning Arabia and Damascus, there's another prophet in the Old Testament. Elijah, in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, he goes away into Arabia, to Mount Sinai in this case, meets with God, and then God tells him, go back by the way of Damascus. And so Paul, in saying, I went into Arabia and came back to Damascus, may be also echoing, hey, I'm kind of like Elijah too, or being set apart from the mother's womb, just like John the Baptist was set apart. This is a common thing for prophets, and him mentioning it is intentional. It's his way of pushing back on this notion that Paul is inferior. He, like, like the Jerusalem apostles, he has seen Jesus face-to-face, been transformed, and sent out as his herald in the world. So then last, this, this man-pleasing charge. How does Paul answer that here? Okay? He's already said, am I trying to please man? Like in the last passage, right? He, Those who preach another gospel are accursed. You think I care what men think? Let me show you, right? That's what we saw in last week's passage. Paul's saying, I'll, I'll please God, say the hard thing no matter the cost. And his testimony here reiterates this. Okay? Here, here's, here's the deal. If Paul was a man-pleaser, if Paul was a man-pleaser, if he really cared about the praise of men and the accolades of men, well, look, he would have stayed in his former way of life. Like, Paul was like a rising star in Pharisaic Judaism. Like, he was the next guy, 
right? Like, he was the one. Everybody was looking at him as he was zealous. He, he said, I outstripped everybody in zeal. His future was bright. He was proving his devotion through persecution. If all he cared about was his reputation among men, he had a good thing going. And his point is, look, I had everything. My community thought I was amazing. I was rising. And then I did a total 180. You know why? Because I care about what God thinks. And God showed up to me. Jesus showed up to me on that road to Damascus. And that changed everything. Paul left the path that he was on for the simple reason that God told him to. God revealed his son to him and changed everything. Paul does not care about pleasing man. Wait till you see what he says to Peter next week. All right, so situation, accusations, applications, here's where we're going to land it. How's this relevant for us? Well, Paul is reading his story and telling his story in light of the biblical story, right? He's echoing the prophets. And one of the tasks that we have is to try to allow the biblical narrative to shape how we view ourselves and our mission, our, our day, our situations, right? So here's three ways. Here's three things that occurred to me as I was reflecting on this passage. First, every time we hear Paul tell his story or the Bible talk about Paul's story, every time we hear Paul's story, we need to be reminded, don't write anyone off. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Like, the, and the, like this is the lesson that Paul kind of carries with him from the beginning of his ministry. This is kind of Galatians era. All the way to the end when we were in the pastorals in First and Second Timothy, right? That he's reminding him, this is trustworthy says, I'm the worst sinner and God gave grace to me so that, you know, anybody can be saved. So from the beginning of his life to the end, for decades, the thing that Paul wanted people to learn from his life is don't write anyone off. The most zealous persecutor of the gospel became the most zealous preacher of the gospel. And when Jesus breaks in, all bets are off. That's good for us to remember. It's good for us to look around at the world in which we live. And you just fill in the blank about the person that you think, no way. It might be somebody in your life. It might be somebody in the wider culture, somebody, you know, government officials or cultural leaders. It doesn't matter. You pick. You pick. You think, no way. There's no way. That person. And the lesson of Paul's life is, don't write anyone off. If God chooses to reveal his son, all bets are off. Second, the complex social situation and pressures in Galatia and Jerusalem and Antioch, which we'll see next week, are worth thinking about. Okay? We'll have probably more opportunity to do so in the coming weeks. Like next week, Pastor Jonathan is going to talk about the pressure on Paul to circumcise Titus and the pressure on Peter to withdraw from table fellowship with Gentiles. But for now, all I want you to be aware of and have kind of in your mind as a category 
is the way that group identity is fundamental to this book. Group identity flowing from what you think God thinks. Remember, Jew and Gentile was the fundamental division in Paul's day. And the revelation of Jesus scrambled that division. Now, it didn't obliterate it. This is important. It didn't just say, well, that that doesn't matter at all in any respect. Like, Jews were still Jews, and many still practiced Jewish customs. And Gentiles were still Gentiles and practiced Gentile customs, and they didn't have to get circumcised or keep food laws in order to be a part of God's people. So, Jews were still Jews, Gentiles were still Gentiles. Those group identities were still there, but the revelation of Jesus subordinated them. It lowered their importance in reality. It relativized them. Now, the more fundamental question was, who's your mother? What? Later, Paul in Galatians chapter 4 is going to say, Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. In other words, the fundamental question is not going to be, who's your earthly people? What are your customs? The fundamental question is, is Jerusalem above, not the Jerusalem on earth, is the Jerusalem above your mother? Are you a part of God's people? That's the fundamental question for group identity. And that's good for us to think about in the 21st century. And then finally, modern people are accustomed to think in terms of man's search for God. Man's search for God, right? Like religions, different religions, uh, different philosophies of the world are all just different ways that human beings sort of grasp for the transcendent and reach and try to search and find their way, grope their way to God. These are traditions of men that have been handed down about how we grope for God. And it's striking here in Paul's testimony that Paul is not fundamentally interested in man's search for God. His gospel is not about man finding God. It's about God's relentless pursuit of man. The gospel is not man reaching up to God and sort of fuzzily finding its way there. It's God revealing His Son to us. Man is not the measure of the gospel. The gospel is not according to man. It was not from man or ultimately taught by men. It is proclaimed, announced, and heralded by men because it was revealed in Jesus. And at one level, God's revelation to Paul was unique. He was set apart in the womb, called to be the prophet to the nations. That's not true for us in the same way. We're neither apostles nor prophets in the Paul sense. And we did not get the gospel directly from Jesus on the Damascus Road. We received it through the prophets and apostles in their inspired writings. But for those who trust in Jesus, God did set you apart from your mother's womb. He did call you by His grace. The eyes of your heart, like Paul's, were open to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and because of that, everything is different. Which brings us to the table. Paul uses this word for revelation a couple of times. Galatians 1.12, received it as a revelation of Christ, and the word there is apocalypse. It's an apocalypse. It means unveiling. It implies that something was hidden and has now been revealed, unveiled. And that's what happens every week at this table. Here, Christ is hidden in simple bread and simple wine. 
But with the eyes of faith, we apprehend Him. We see Him. God reveals His Son to us as the one who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. This is the good news. So come and welcome to Jesus. Pastors are going to come. And as they do, we've got, we're back to the, uh, the ancient paths, the old ways. The outer ring is grape juice. Everything else is wine. The cups are together with the bread at the bottom. And so we'll hold them and eat them separately, but you'll receive them all at once. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.